The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. But it's interesting that North Korea has frequently sought to send signals of resolve and effect by undertaking legal reforms. And uh, I think it was in 2013, around that time, uh, North Korea wrote into its constitution, wrote into its constitution, Ben, that it was a nuclear weapons state. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 28th, 2022. It's been an eventful several weeks on the Korean Peninsula, a spree of missile tests, the sudden display of a daughter of Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, and the articulation of a remarkably aggressive nuclear doctrine. To go over it all, I asked Stefan Haggart to join me in the Jungle Studio. Haggart is the Lawrence and Sally Krauss Professor of Korea-Pacific Studies at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. He is a longtime North Korea watcher and one of the voices I most trust on the subject. We talked about how all of this relates to prior diplomacy between the North and the Trump administration. We talked about what message the North Koreans are trying to send with the combination of this testing and the articulation of this new doctrine. And we talked about whether there is any prospect of denuclearization at any time in the foreseeable future. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 28th. Stefan Haggard on what's going on in North Korea. All right, so let's start with the uh, lay of the land, which has uh, changed a bit over the last couple weeks. What's been going on with the North Koreans? What have they been up to? And why is the world, when it's not thinking about Ukraine, suddenly looking over its shoulder at, at, at North Korea these days? Well, thanks, Ben, as always, for having me on. I'm going to give a somewhat long arc answer to that, but I won't go on too long. So I think we have to go all the way back to 2017 and the period of fire and fury when the North Koreans were testing a number of intercontinental ballistic missiles, and we were really in a tense place. And I think the Trump administration was even contemplating the use of force. 
And as you know, uh, all of a sudden, everything turned on a dime and the summit era came in. And at that juncture, the North Koreans literally stopped altogether missile testing over the course of 2018 and into 2019. And then in the wake of the Hanoi summit, they sat for a while and tried to absorb the failure of that summit. But then gradually over the course of 2020, 2021, and particularly in 2022, the testing has resumed in spades. And it's come in two waves. The first wave in the first part of the year, I think, is basically developmental in the sense that the North Koreans are simply developing capability and making sure things work. But in the second half of the year, it's pretty clear to me that these most recent tests have come in direct response to the resumption of U.S. ROC joint military exercises on the peninsula. And they're taking more the form until this ICBM test of exercises. You know, they're, they're demonstrating capability and, and testing capabilities. So, when, first of all, when you say rock, uh, that's South Korea. Yeah, Republic of Korea. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your sense of the arc here. Uh, the Hanoi summit was a failure by everybody's estimation. But it's never been clear to me what the North Korean metric of success would have been. So the Trump administration looked at it and said, uh, we can't get a commitment to nuclear disarmament from the North. Uh, that's the only standard we're interested in. So I understand from the U.S. perspective what the metric of success and failure looked like, though I thought it was somewhat delusional that they thought they were going to get anything like that. But what do we know about what the North was actually, like what from their point of view success would have looked like? Well, actually, believe it or not, we have a pretty good source on that in addition to just the public commentary, which is that Bolton's memoir is actually worth a read. And that's not something I would typically say, to be perfectly honest, because I had a hack at the first one. But his chapter on Hanoi is extremely interesting. And, and though he's very jaded about what the North Koreans came in with, I think he did accurately describe what happened. So basically what happened is this. Kim Jong-un came into Hanoi thinking that he could strike a deal with Trump in which he would agree in a somewhat vague way, admittedly, to shut down Yongbyon which is the place that houses uh, both the reprocessing facilities, the enrichment facilities, and the reactor that generates the spent fuel rods for plutonium. And so that was the offer on hand. And in return, what he asked for uh, was the cancellation or reversal of four very particular UN Security Council resolutions, which had been passed over the course of 2016 and 17, and for the first time had really gone after North Korea's commercial trade. And this was part of a deal that goes back to the Mar-a-Lago summit in early 2017 with Xi Jinping, 
and the Chinese peak at uh, having to deal with this ongoing thorn in their side, the North Koreans. So the deal that the North Koreans wanted, I think, is spelled out, which is we'll do something about Yongbyon, admittedly vague, and you, the United States, will grant us adequate sanctions relief to, to make this whole effort worth our while. And whether it was Trump himself or whether it was his team, Pompeo and Bolton, that convinced him to walk, they basically said, look, this is just not enough for us. We're willing to do something incremental, but you're not telling us about other facilities. You're asking for too much. And of course, once the summit was over, the Trump administration did very little, in my view, to really follow up and try to pursue the lead. So that's my interpretation. I don't think it's actually that different from Bolton's, believe it or not. Interesting. So since then, you, you, you describe North Korea as kind of being in this posture of absorbing it and kind of finally deciding, hey, the only real leverage we have is testing. So let's have a testing blitz. Is that a fair reductive summary? It's not bad, Ben. I'll give it to you. But but let me just uh, nuance it a little bit. So, you know, uh, I think it was Sid Hacker up at Stanford who made this interesting observation that when political scientists inquire about the purpose of tests, they're always looking for a political signal. And when engineers analyze nu- nuclear and missile tests, they're always looking at the question of what capability is being developed. And so I think it's both of those. Uh, you know, I, the, the North Koreans clearly have a degraded conventional capability. Everyone knows that. Iraq uh, and U.S. conventional superiority, setting aside nuclear weapons, is pretty obvious on the peninsula. And so missiles are partly the key to having some kind of deterrent. But you're also right that during certain phases, the resumption of testing might have been to try to get American attention refocused on the question so you could get back to negotiations. But I, for one, I don't think we can assume that the North Korean posture in Hanoi and Singapore was entirely disingenuous. It sounds to me like they wanted to strike some sort of deal and it was just never, it was never finalized. Although, I mean, I have to say, if you want to strike some kind of deal and you're North Korea, you have to be really ignorant of Western sensibilities to, which of course they are, to not understand that denuclearization is the synchronon, verifiable denuclearization is the synchronon of anything that any U.S. administration could accept and sell as a victory at home, right? I mean, it was quite naive of them to think that even Donald Trump will sell you the Yongbyon, decommissioning Yongbyon rug once again. They already did that once, and you'll give us major sanctions relief. That's a kind of a non-starter from a U.S. perspective, right? 
Well, believe it or not, not necessarily. And let me tell you why. I think that in, during the first Bush administration, there was this idea. And remember, the nuclear crisis in North Korea goes all the way back to 2006. I don't even know if we can still call it a crisis. That was the first test. But actually, even before that, in 2002, 2003, you had the breakdown of the previous agreed framework. But here's where I guess I, I disagree a little bit at the margin. You know, the, the U.S. has accepted, I think, and this goes all the way back to Condi Rice, and it goes straight up to Steve Began, who was Trump's point man on this, and actually, I think, had a lot of respect within the North Korea watchers community. The thing that Began realized is you're never going to get an Iran deal out of the North Koreans, in part because they've broken out. And by an Iran deal, I don't mean all the specifics and details, but I just mean an agreement in which there would be a date certain on which all of the obligations of the parties would essentially be met, whether you like them or not, and you're in a new terrain. And I think that the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration have all accepted the reality that while, of course, denuclearization is the end goal, we also understand that that's only going to happen through some incremental bargaining process. So, so yes, I mean, selling the Yongbyon rug again, I agree. But I don't think anyone thinks that you can just get to a complete deal with the North Koreans uh, all at once. All right. So the other day, Kim Jong-un is uh, filmed with his nine-year-old daughter inspecting rockets. What do we make of it? Well, you know, there's another logic that's going on here, which is non-trivial in my view, and that's the domestic politics of all of this in North Korea. And that photo to me is just an extraordinary piece of political theater because here he has this huge, you know, ICBM, which is actually, uh, you know, road mobile, and he's walking in front of it, holding the hand of his daughter. And of course, the message is, we're all family here. I'm protecting my daughter, and this is what I need to do to do that. But there's another piece of this, which is that the sanctions that I described, you know, that the North Koreans wanted lifted, despite their genius at sanctions evasion, of course, they've been doing this for decades, the sanctions that the Chinese acquiesced to actually had pretty severe effect. And, and we really know that. Chinese customs data, you can look at the trade figures and they just plunge uh, in the course of 2018-19. And then in addition to that, you've got COVID coming in and the North Koreans following a policy that might be called zero COVID squared where they completely close the border and shut the country off. And so all of this, needless to say, was interfering with the domestic political objective of formulating and rolling out a new economic plan that would get North Korea moving again. And so the military accomplishments really became a quite dramatic piece of what Kim Jong-un could claim as a success. And we saw in the Eighth Party Congress in January 2021 a whole list of 
uh, shopping list of, of military capabilities that he wanted to acquire. And in some sense, what he's doing is ticking them off and showing the North Koreans that uh, the country's capable of, of achieving them. In one of our prior conversations, you described, and I thought it was a very memorable formulation, which I remember as a result, you described this was during the 2017 uh, flurry of tests, uh, that the structure of deterrence on the Korean Peninsula was sound and stable, uh, notwithstanding any theatrics. And I'm interested in whether you still feel that way, if, if they have ICBMs that are functional, that can reach very long distances, not merely Guam, but the mainland United States, is the structure of deterrence on the Korean Peninsula fundamentally different, or is being able to nuke Japan sufficiently dire and nuke Seoul sufficiently dire that the marginal uh, ability to nuke Los Angeles doesn't really change the calculation very much. Well, look, I, I, that's, that's exactly the right question. I think the community of people who think about these issues is actually quite divided on this. And I'm in the less alarmist camp. I just don't see how you know, what military advantage the North Koreans will necessarily gain from having these nuclear weapons. We have the capacity to deter them. We have the conventional capacity to win and so on. But I have to give some points to the other side because in particular, there's this problem of so-called alliance drift and alliance management that has definitely increased in salience as a result of these new capabilities. And they're exactly what you describe, which is if a crisis were to ensue, is the United States commitment to defend the peninsula credible if not only Japan and Guam are, are at risk, but Los Angeles is at risk? And my answer to that is yes, it is credible because it's been built and sustained by a whole series of commitments and capabilities. But if you're sitting in South Korea, it's, it's not as easy to answer that question as it is in Washington. And in my trip out to uh, Seoul in September, where I attended a track to dialogue we run with the Japanese and the Chinese and the South Koreans, I was really struck by the extent to which alliance assurance issues were being raised repeatedly. And you probably know there's some very interesting polling on South Korean attitudes towards actually breaking out and acquiring nuclear weapons of their own. I personally don't think that this is a very high risk for reasons I can explain. But it's interesting that the South Korean public is much more sanguine about that possibility than we've seen ever. Sanguine meaning supportive or supportive? Meaning supportive, yeah. Supportive is probably a more accurate way to put it. And there's polling that suggests, uh, depending on the poll, as many as 70% of the, as much as 70% of the Korean public would be okay with uh, or believes that South Korea should acquire nuclear weapons. And in one interesting poll, which really struck me more than others, that percentage 
almost held up even when the question was primed with the fact that South Korea would pay some cost for acquiring that capability. Like what sort of cost? It was undefined, you know, but but South Korea would pay, you know, some international reputational cost if it acquired these weapons. Do you still believe that we should go ahead and do it? And it didn't move the needle that much. Uh, so, so I think there's a lot of angst in, in South Korea over these issues. I'm not sure it's held all the way down the public. This isn't the most salient issue. Uh, you know, if you ask where North Korea and the alliance fall, housing prices, a whole series of other things, you know, are, are likely to be higher in the queue. But if you talk to the strategic planning, the military community, the foreign policy community there, I just heard much more about alliance assurance issues now than I've heard in a while. And uh, the UN administration has moved with the, with the Biden administration to reinstate uh, an extended deterrence uh, strategy and consultation committee, which had been disbanded under the Moon administration in his efforts to engage the North Koreans, and just a lot more thinking about, about deterrence. And the exercises that were resumed this year are exemplary of that concern on both sides. Uh, we've, we're now doing foreign policy via exercises on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, you say that as though that were a bad thing, which I assume, because you said it, you think it is. But I want to flesh that out. Is it? And is there some better way that we should be communicating with the North Koreans? No, I don't. I didn't actually mean to give that impression, uh, though, you know, I've got a little bit of qualms. Vincent Brooks, who was uh, the commander of U.S. Forces Korea during the Obama-Trump transition, and a very, very sharp guy, you know, he made this observation that exercises are to be modulated. And what he meant by that is at any given time, you can choose the scope of the exercise, the nature of the exercises, exactly what forces are deployed, but also the messaging. How are these described? Are these routine exercises for a defensive purpose, read low-key messaging? Or are these designed and guaranteed to crush the regime if needed in the case of conflict? And so uh, the exercises guarantee interoperability. They're crucial to the alliance. Uh, but the messaging in terms of scope, as well as literally the messages, was a little forward this time. Um, you had you know, just a succession of exercises. There were naval exercises. The Japanese were involved. We had a carrier task force. You had Air Force exercises. And a lot of exercises that the U.S. actually conducts in, in, in South Korea, they're not tabletop exercises for strategic guys to sit around and figure out what might happen in a crisis. Right. They're live fire, actual in the field. Yeah. yeah. They're command post exercises, which are basically a bunch of guys sitting around uh, in front of computers and managing issues like how is the road system going to be kept open in the face of a conflict and how do we manage resupply and logistics and that kind of thing. That's very different than sending, you know, B-1 bombers 
flying over the Korean Peninsula and, you know, having troops practicing marine landings and so on. And, and this was a fairly extended period of exercises that was even lengthened in response to the recent test, you know, the most important being that, that, uh, that ICBM test. So, so I, I'm not critical of exercises per se, but we went hard on this, on this round of them. And when I see these headlines that say North Koreans, you know, launching missiles, well, surprise, surprise, you know, they've always seen these, uh, these exercises as challenging. So I think what to look for going forward is whether when these exercises are sort of f- fully concluded, which they are at the present, but you know, give us a week or two, whether we see a, a similar diminution in the pace of testing, because that would sort of that would test the proposition that these are in fact closely related to the resumption of the exercises. Interesting. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. All right, so I want to turn to Ukraine. Everybody and his mother is doing a podcast over the last couple of weeks about what the Chinese are learning about from Ukraine about Taiwan and what the Taiwanese are learning uh, from Ukraine about their own capacity to defend uh, from Chinese invasion. I suspect the North Koreans are watching this as well and that some aspect of the late theatrics are uh, a creature of uh, them looking over their shoulders at the West's relationship with Ukraine and specifically the uh, incredible underperformance of Russian weaponry with respect to uh, NATO weaponry, especially given the uh, degradation of their own forces that you've referred to in the conventional space. And so I'm interested in your sense of if you're a North Korean and you're watching Ukraine or you're Chinese and you're watching Ukraine with North Korea in mind, what are you taking from this conflict? Yeah, you know, Ben, you've pushed this in a kind of interesting way and it isn't necessarily the way I would go on it. You know, the the comparisons with the Korean Peninsula are a little hard to draw out. Across the Taiwan Strait, you could argue, well, the Chinese are thinking about 
how difficult it might be to perform that operation and what the cost might be and are there reserves at risk and what about technology export controls and so on. But in the case of the Korean Peninsula, it's not clear who the equivalent of the Russians and who the equivalent of the Ukrainians are. But I do think that one clear lesson that was taken away from this is that this is an opportunity for the North Koreans to essentially fly the red flag, so to speak. We're on board. You know, the Xi-Putin document that came out, a joint statement that came out of the Olympics, which is really an absolutely remarkable document. It's a stunning document. It's just a stunning thing. And I've I've got lots to say about it. But, you know, the thing that the Chinese have been doing with respect to Ukraine is actually very similar to what they've done on the Korean Peninsula forever, which is to basically say restraint on both sides, regardless of who initiated any given action. And so in some sense, the Chinese have practiced this, but they've also started to articulate, in my view, a strategic vision, which is really going after the American alliance system in a much more forward way than I think I've ever seen. You know, the alliances were tolerated by the Chinese. It's clear they never really wanted them. But now everything is basically being blamed on NATO. And the Indo-Pacific concept is seen as nothing more than the first steps in creating an Asian NATO. And North Korea is looking at this and saying, boy, I fit into that joint statement absolutely perfectly. And if you go back, if you recall, you know, at the time that the the war occurred, under the Uniting for Peace resolution at the UN, it was possible for the UN General Assembly to essentially do a straw poll vote on what countries thought about the invasion, about kicking the Russians off the Human Rights Council. I think there were four UNGA resolutions which were put up to vote. And there were only five countries that voted against the proposition that the invasion was a violation of the UN Charter, and North Korea was one of them. So I think what the North Koreans see is not only potential parallels there, and the importance of having nuclear weapons perhaps would be one of those lessons, but they're also thinking that this is a chance for them to really openly align with this vision that Putin and Xi are articulating and to show that they have disruptive value, if you can think of it that way. You know, we can poke the Americans in the eye. Now, whether the, the Chinese actually think that's an asset or not is, is another issue. And I'll just make, say one other thing on this. And that is that, you know, everyone's been talking about the the looming seventh nuclear test, and it hasn't come yet. It hasn't come yet. And even if uh, the North Koreans did articulate a quite alarming change in their nuclear force posture uh, in November, you know, they haven't undertaken the seventh test. And I can't help wondering whether the Chinese are at least exercising some restraint on them in that regard. All right. So let's unpack a little bit of that. I want to come back to the alarming uh, stated nuclear posture and the significance of the, the missing seventh test. 
but I want to go back to your point that the major takeaway from Ukraine on the part of the North Koreans is that they see opportunity in it to be useful to the Sino-Russian statement of mutual values. It seems to me that that's a that's a a bit of a peculiar takeaway uh, from at least where I sit, because the Chinese have become increasingly impatient and almost seems like they've become kind of embarrassed by issuing this grandiose statement with the Russians, only to have the Russians, you know, kind of get their ass kicked over and over and over again over the course of of this conflict. You know the Chinese regime much better than I do. Are the North Koreans, to the extent that they're reading the Chinese that way, are they reading them correctly? Or are they, you know, overestimating? Oh, yeah, kind of overestimating their own potential value. As best as I can tell, the Chinese see them as an occasionally useful pain in the ass. Well, look, there's a, there's a lot there. But remember, if you have a regime of this sort, which is just rooted in personalism and hero worship and cult of personality, the chances that you're going to overestimate your cosmic significance are high. So don't rule out that that's part of what's going on for sure. But look, this is a very complicated game. And I think the Chinese, how the Chinese have played it suggests that they might see a little bit more value in North Korea or a little bit more risk in North Korea being pulled away than we might think. So let me just recount the history again. When Xi Jinping came into office, uh, the North Koreans at that juncture rained on his parade by doing some testing that kind of complicated uh, the international landscape for him. And he wouldn't be seen with Kim Jong-un for over five years. He, he wanted nothing to do with him. Kim Jong-un didn't, didn't visit China, and needless to say, even high-level officials shunned the North Koreans. But then all of a sudden, as soon as Trump says in March 2018, oh yeah, sure, I'll meet with Kim Jong-un, in the course of less than a year, there are five, five Xi Jinping-Kim Jong-un summits. Five. And this is a guy who wouldn't even talk to him. He didn't even want to be seen on the dais with him. And, you know, look, we can imagine what the nature of those conversations might have been. But all of a sudden, it just appeared that the North Koreans had more strategic significance for China than anyone would have previously thought. Now, let me just say that there there are some potential contradictions here, but I think that they go to the heart of Chinese grand strategy in some way, which is if you're smart in Beijing, according to Stefan Haggard, the last thing you want is a North Korea which is strengthening not only the U.S.-Korea alliance and the U.S.-Japan alliance, but even the possibility of trilateral cooperation among the three. But that doesn't seem to be the way that the Chinese are reading this situation. And so I I think you can't rule out, you know, some subtle strategic miscalculation. Interesting. 
really complicated. Yeah, it's a very it's a very complicated picture, you know. But I don't think that what I've just said is completely out of line with the way that China is kind of confronting the world, you know. It mm -hmm. it sees itself cornered by alliances and new forms of cooperation, which are almost entirely a response to their own <laughs> foreign policy. Right. And right. they don't seem to get that. And the biggest fish in this in this sea, to me, is what's happening with Europe-Asia relations. I mean, Asia was always far away, and all of a sudden the Europeans are sitting up and say, you know, we need to worry about the Chinese. Right, right. That's new. That's it's new. entirely a function of Chinese behavior, but the Chinese perceive it as a threat independent of their own precipitating behavior. I mean, look, that's my read. And it's not that the U.S. is blameless and we can talk about NATO expansion and so on. But, but, but I just think that, you know, it's quite possible that China is misreading uh, the value of North Korea because it certainly seems to me that the two alliances in Northeast Asia are in pretty good shape. And I think they were in good shape before Yoon in Korea, by the way. I don't think the relationship under Moon was as bad as some people believe it was. Interesting. All right. So before we wrap, I want to talk about the six tests, the absence of the seventh test, and what the posture, the nuclear posture of the North Koreans uh, means on its face and what, it, what you think it really means. So, so walk us through the whole thing and how do you understand it and particularly how do you understand the absence of the seventh test yeah well look i mean this this plays into a question that you and i have a common interest in which is how do you understand authoritarian law because of course the two would seem to be completely incompatible if you're authoritarian you're unconstrained by the law but it's interesting that North Korea has frequently sought to send signals of resolve, in effect, by undertaking legal reforms. And uh, I think it was in 2013, around that time, uh, North Korea wrote into its constitution, wrote into its constitution, Ben, that it was a nuclear weapons state. And just sending the signal, you know, this is not something we're going to roll back lightly, trying to raise the bribe price, making it appear more difficult to make concessions. And this was still in a period when, you know, there was at least some possibility you could have gotten back to talks. But this last uh, nuclear uh, weapons law basically lowers the bar for nuclear use in a pretty striking fashion because First of all, it absolutely rejects the idea that nuclear weapons are only for strategic use, that is to deter nuclear attack, because the North Koreans know perfectly well that it's highly unlikely that the Western, you know, the United States is going to attack North Korea with nuclear weapons. But it now says that nuclear weapons could be used uh, for conventional purposes. They could be used for war fighting they see their arsenal as having strategic and tactical components. And moreover, and this is the most destabilizing feature of it, is they say that uh, nuclear weapons might be used preemptively in circumstances where the regime and its leadership, by the way, 
which is an important distinction, uh, are under threat. And when I say the leadership under threat, this comes from the fact that the South Koreans in particular have developed a defense and deterrence posture that includes these three separate components of ballistic missile defense, also invoking the possibility of preemption to manage a potential nuclear strike and conventional strike, and in addition have said, we will decapitate the leadership in the case of a conflict if we believe it's warranted. And needless to say, those are things which make for a less stable peninsula if two sides are both saying there's a possibility that we would preempt. And just to be clear, I take it your interpretation of it legally is the same as mine, which is to say that the law here is not in any sense binding on the regime. It's simply an expression of the regime's external-facing communications. Well, yes, but I guess I'm, I'm trying out an idea on you, and I'm curious what you think of it. It's also upping the ante, because it's saying, no, this is not just a policy. This is an enduring constitutional feature of the North Korean system. We are a nuclear power. We don't care about the NPT or what you think. We're inscribing it in domestic law that we're a nuclear power. And, and, you know, the implication of that is that to stand down from that commitment, which was obviously taken quite publicly, I'm sure this was all over the front page of Rodung Shinmun at the time, would mean figuring out at least some way to walk that back. And of course, they're perfectly capable of doing it. They control the information space. But I think it's also a way of sending signals to the United States that, you know, we're not going to give up these weapons lightly. And now I think most people would agree that they're not going to give them up ever and at all. And at best, you can, you know, try to get to some sort of arms control agreement or limitations on tests. All right. So in the context of all of that, how do you understand the sequence of, of six but not seven tests. Well, it's, it's just this point. Actually, this was made to me by my colleague, Susan Shirk, that her, her take, she had this very interesting idea, and I think it's worth entertaining. You know, who knows whether it's true. But basically, they roll out this law that says we can use these nuclear weapons in a wide array of circumstances, and we're going to kind of continue to develop them. But maybe because that signal has been sent, you don't need another test. You don't need it. Now, you know, this gets to this question of the political costs and signaling versus testing the capability. I, I still think that, uh, and I speak as a political scientist, that we sometimes overestimate the signaling functions of these tests and underestimate the development of capabilities. Maybe they still feel they need to test for that reason. But maybe if they've said, if they've stuck the quills of the porcupine out and basically said, look, there are a lot of circumstances under which we would use these weapons, that they've achieved the objective. But then you look at it and you say, okay, you have this spree of tests, the articulation of this doctrine, and then this very aggressive doctrine, and then a subsequent test doesn't happen. And you're left with a, I think, inability to interpret is 
the articulation of this very belligerent doctrine, but no seventh test, a way of climbing down and stopping the testing? Or is it the articulation of the doctrine is, is itself so aggressive that you don't need the seventh test? Do you see this as a way of justifying a, uh, a diminution of testing, or do you see it as an aggressive finish to the set of tests? Yeah, well, I, I mean, those actually aren't mutually exclusive, are they? I mean, I like the way you formulated that. I recall, though, I can't remember if it was at the Eighth Party Congress or one of the preceding plenums, and it was read at the time as mildly hopeful. Kim Jong-un said something like this, our nuclear capability is now complete, by which he, he meant at that time, look, we've got an adequate deterrent to do the job. You know, let's pivot at the margin back to economic issues. So I, I think it could be doing both of these things. It could be saying, look, we've got a wide array of uses for, for our nuclear arsenal, and we're going to have, it's going to include tactical as well as strategic forces. But at the same time saying, you know, we've done it. We've broken out. We don't need to continue to demonstrate that fact. Now, of course, we don't know to what extent they may be constrained by the Chinese or just their assessment of the landscape. But, uh, but it's possible that they believe the law sort of accomplished their objective in terms of signaling. So what are you looking for going forward? What will be the signs to you that will be probative of, of where they're heading over the next few months? Well, I think the first thing is just to see, uh, you know, test the proposition whether the exercises were really determining here. You know, now that the exercises are wound up, I, I just can't see the pace of testing uh, continuing at this pace. So we're just going to get back into the containment status quo. Uh, I don't think the Biden administration has much interest in trying to do anything uh, dramatic here, but I think it would be extremely interesting if, unbeknownst to everyone, Biden was sending private letters to Kim Jong-un saying, hey, I mean it when I say we're willing to talk to you anyplace, anytime. And of course, he doesn't mean a summit, but he's saying we're willing to send, I'm willing to send Sung Kim to Pyongyang to, uh, to talk to you and listen to what you have to say. I don't see any harm in doing that. I don't expect it would be taken up. But I think, I think the United States has to continue to place the offers on the table and, and say there is a path out of this. There is a path out of this, even if the likelihood of it being taken up by the North Koreans is small. We are going to leave it there. Steph Haggard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure, Ben. I always like talking to you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me. I did it myself. And here's something that you can do yourself. With You don't even need any help. You can go to patreon.com slash lawfare and become a material supporter of the site. Get ad-free podcasts. Get access to our hacking class going on right now. Uh, get access to all kinds of other goodies and become a supporter of Lawfare. It feels so good. 
The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the great Jen Patia Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.